Welcome to series three of Life Sci AI, the podcast series, hosted by Nick Mahoney, consultant at SciPro. I hope you enjoy. Awesome. Welcome back to another episode of Life Sci AI, the podcast series. And this is series three. Um, it's the second episode. So, really hope you enjoyed the first episode with Helix. In this episode, we are joined um, by the soft, head of software um, for a company called Fibris. And Fibris are a company, it's an AI guided tool um, that supports uh, community um, healthcare and making sure that uh, people who are diagnosed and doctors can be connected um, so that nobody goes without patient care um, that uh, doesn't perhaps need it or can can't access a doctor. We are joined by Sebastian Durando, who is the head of software, as I said. So welcome very much uh, to the podcast. Glad to have you on. Thank you, Nick. Uh, a pleasure to be talking with you today. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, I've been listening to some of the, of the past episodes uh, and I've been amazed about some of the guests and, and stories that I've been hearing. Very cool. Yeah, awesome. And um, I, because I, I almost butchered um, the introduction into Vibris, <laughs> shifting over my words with access. Um, give us just a bit of a short intro um, before going into your background again, just a short, sharp intro into Vibris. Yeah, sure. Um, so our goal um, is to, like you were saying, to prevent um, or improve people uh, getting sick by extending the capabilities of the health system into the community. Uh, so we like to say that we are building the next generation of, of remote patient monitoring tools. Um, so in practice, this means that we have a mobile lab that can connect with medical sensors, uh, such as a pulse oximeter, uh, a digital stethoscope that we use to collect vital signs from patients. Um, and with this data that we collect, we try to detect early if a patient can get sick uh, or like it's called technically deteriorate yeah. um, and ultimately try to keep them out of hospital. Awesome, did a better job than I did. <laughs> Tripping over my way. <laughs> so um, talk to us a little bit about yourself both, Seb, because you didn't come from a med tech background, right? You came from different areas of industry, but a very experienced engineer by any stretch of the imagination. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I'm, I'm a software engineer by background. I've been building software for, for the last 15 years uh, in different roles. Um, so I, I studied and started my career in Buenos Aires, in Argentina, and I kind of moved to London five years ago, uh, looking for new challenges in a way. Um, and I've always liked startups. Uh, so when I, when I came here, I started looking for someone doing someone, something different. Uh, those thing, types of things that you only find in tech hubs like London or, or San Francisco. Uh, and that's when I met Adam and Lina, which, which are the founders of Fibris. And, and I immediately realized they were super passionate, very smart, and, and that they wanted to be part of their team. Uh, so hopefully they thought the same. Uh, so I, I joined the company as first software person. And as you said, I didn't have previous experience with health, but at that time, we, we were running our first pilot with children uh, in the slums in India. Uh, and it really blew my mind how technology and health can go side by side to help in the community. So yeah, I've been basically leading the team uh, ever since. Awesome. And your, your background in software engineering, um, what is it underpinned by? Because now software engineering can cover loads of different areas. So, so what, what is it underpinned by? 
Yeah, well, I, I think I have a lot of background in consultancy. Uh, I would say uh, backend engineering and also kind of team management and, and how to make sure that teams are organized, they have clarity, they know how to perform um, and, and, and things like, like this. And yeah, honestly, I've been learning a lot about health and health tech and, and regulations in the last three, four years as well. So when you joined, so when you moved to London uh, and you, you met the founders, how did you, because there's a, there's a real, real good stories about formulation of companies on this podcast and how and where and when uh, they formed. My mind goes back to series one with the Optelum um, and it was in the mountains of, uh, of uh, the Himalayas. Um, for when uh, Dr. Raklav had the idea to start Obsellum um, or the drive to. So how did you meet the founders? And you mentioned they were talking about the slums in India. So it'd be good to know when that happened, how that happened and the story after that. Yeah, that, that's super interesting. So yeah, at that time they had just raised their first seed um, and they had built kind of an MVP uh, of, of that was already kind of running in India and they needed someone uh, that could in a way take over that and, and started kind of stabilizing it uh, and started to convert it into a full software product. Uh, so they were looking at, at this software lead and, and the way they say it is, is, is quite interested, interesting because like they probably needed someone they really could trust uh, because this is common in founders that when they don't come from a software or technical background, uh, even though Elena has quite a lot of background in machine learning, um, the first thing they need is someone that, that they can trust making good decisions when they are not like really from the field. Um, and so, yeah, they had an open position. I, I, again, I was looking uh, for companies uh, and I, I thought about when, when I was saying like something different, I thought let's look at a company heavily based on machine learning and AI. Um, and well, we connected LinkedIn, we started talking, uh, we had a couple of conversations and, and yeah, a couple, a month, I think after that I joined. Awesome, awesome. So when, how far along were they in the company? So you, you just started the, the study or the, the first initial iterations of the product? And then what was your task? Yeah, so, so yes, I mean the, the, the first MVP was was already built um, and and it was being used, but I joined basically to transform that in something we could commercialize here in the UK. Uh, so we kind of had an app that was focused for for children in India. Um, and I, 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 I yeah basically joined to to transform that into a product we could commercialize and, and send so the first the first thing we did was we started commercializing with elderly care homes here in the UK. Um, that was yeah, a couple of years ago. Now we are expanding into other other areas. Awesome. And so without sort of um, stepping on the toes of the intro, um, but utilizing AI, right? And yeah. effectively, um, real short synopsis is you're connecting somebody over here um, who hasn't got access to healthcare or a doctor and you're used to helping the doctor connect to them remotely or through the cloud or through um, through tech effectively. Is that what we're looking at here? Uh, it is, it is. Um, so when you think about it, 
this thing that you're describing that is, is remote patient monitoring is not something necessarily new. Yeah. Um, so when you take it to the basics, um, you are trying to collect data using a mobile phone or a tablet and upload it to the cloud. But the reality is if you just do that, the value that you add to the patients uh, and the users is actually quite low. Uh, and this is super interesting and it's been a learning journey for us. Uh, and the reason for this is because of three particular challenges in this area. One is, uh, so the accessibility of technology and, and internet access. So you would think that here in the UK, internet is everywhere, but if you go to care homes, even in London, internet doesn't work really well. Um, and that is a problem for adoption. And it's not only here in the UK, uh, in America, in the US, uh, in rural America, there are many areas where internet is really spotty. Um, so that's one challenge. The other challenge is that the devices that you use for remote patient monitoring shouldn't be expensive because otherwise the cost becomes a blocker for adoption. So for example, it doesn't really make sense to have a hospital grade pulse oximeter sitting in a person's home that will be idle most of the time. So that's, that's, that's the first challenge. The second challenge, and probably this is the most important one for us, is the, the one about clinical reliability. So collecting data in a person's home uh, or in a care home is very different than doing it in the hospital, which is a very controlled and in a way sanitized environment. So for example, um, we saw that when users were capturing a stethoscope recording in care homes, very frequently they had the radio or the TV in the background, uh, and that generated background noise that made the recording useless from a medical perspective. So that, that, that's a thing that we saw happening a lot. And the other challenge is that um, clinicians uh, are very busy and you want to make sure you're not adding more noise to them. Uh, so, for example, if, if a person has normally high or blood, uh, low, sorry, low blood pressure, it is not useful to flag this to the clinician every time you see an abnormal measurement. So, for exposing data to clinicians, uh, it is very important that when you capture data remotely, you consider the context and the history of the patient, not, not just isolated data, data points that might be not really useful for them. Uh, and then there is a third one, uh, which is usability. Uh, which is also quite interesting because the profiles of the users that we are targeting is quite different from someone, for example, doing a purchase online. Um, the carer that uses our app uh, can have different levels of training um, and maybe it's using the app while you, using, while doing other 20 different things in a very stressful environment. So in a way you need to design with the user in mind when you are building software. So all of these challenges makes it that something that seems simple on the surface gets a bit more complicated in practice. Yeah, no, so the, the, the three challenges there are interesting. Like, I guess the, the internet piece is, is something that is uncontrollable for Fibris um, and is, is something that's, that's commonplace. Um, so we'll leave that one for, for a second. Um, but in terms of the, the, the sort of the medical reliability point of view, is how much of this is a blocker because you, you've got to be reliable, but you kind of the point of Fibris is that the doctor doesn't need to be there or the clinical expert doesn't need to be there. So how are you going to create conditions that allow you to be medically in efficacy um, on point without somebody being there? I guess. Yeah, uh, that's a great question, exactly. 
Um, so that's uh, for us where, where, where AI comes into play and, and machine learning. So uh, we use AI heavily to analyze the signals that we capture and make sure they have enough quality to be useful. So just to give you a, another concrete example for the case I was mentioning before uh, on the pulse on the stethoscope, we managed to introduce a deep learning model uh, that tried to identify if there was what background noise in the stethoscope recording and flag this to the person to try to either reduce it or see how they can uh, they can they can proceed. Um, and that has shown that we, we increase the quality yeah. uh, of the recordings in general. That's one example. Another, another example uh, that we've seen a lot is with the pulse oximeter. So for example, you would think that just putting a probe in a person's finger and capturing oxygen saturation is easy. But in reality, there's many things that can go wrong in the way. Uh, so they can put the probe wrong, the person can have cold hands, they can have nail varnish, a lot of things that can affect the quality of the measurement. So what we, we, we also introduce AI there uh, to analyze the quality of that we are getting from the device in real time. Uh, and if the quality is not enough, we flag it to the user uh, with actionable guidance uh, so that they can make any necessary adjustment and, and try to increase the quality of the reading. Um, it's all about averages. Of course, there are still points where it gets tricky, where we need to rely on manual inputs of things and things like that. But that's where like, kind of a smart uh, piece of the platform life. I see. So the AI piece comes in for like preventative measures. Um, could the AI go as far as, so for example, taking um, the, the, so the, the, the background noise, could it go as far as having some, some I, don't, I don't know, audio DSP in there to denoise um, the, the, the sensor? Um, so it's just picking up that area. Could it go so far as to do that, or is it just going to be a preventative measure for, for, the, for, like, for highlighting it? Yeah, that is that is super interesting. Um, we so we we are aware that there are uh, some experiments in research of denoising signals uh, using microphones, a little bit like what the, the, the AirPods do. Uh, we 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 did some tests on our side with different levels of success. Uh, so we haven't introduced that, that, that to the product yet, but it's definitely in the roadmap. Awesome, okay. Um, and then is this sort of the medical reliability piece? Because you kind of got to go on the theory that the users aren't as smart as you. Um, and I mean you, Sebastian, not me. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got to, you've got to think, um, you know, what could a human being misinterpret, get wrong um, with, with some, of these, some of these readings. So how far could you take this down, down different diagnostics, different sort of um, patient monitoring um, clinical areas? And are there some that you've just gone, there's just, that's just too much for us to look at, do you think? Well, yeah, um, I think it's, a, it's kind of a journey. Um, our idea is that um, we should be introducing more and more devices down the road to get a more complete picture of the user. Uh, and as we get more, more and more data points um, and we can make the checkup, uh, uh, as we call it, uh, the collection of data points really, really easy, we can get more data and give more uh, precise insights. 
um, yeah. and and what I was what I was talking before, like just giving the clinician the information of the patient in the context uh, of, of their history, and adjusting in a way what things are uh, something that the clinician should see versus something that is normal for for a patient. Yeah. Um, and further down the line, uh, of course, like there the are studies of detecting specific diseases or, or biomarkers. Um, and we are doing some explorations on that front, how to detect arrhythmia, how to detect certain conditions uh, that, that can be detected via machine learning on, on the point of collection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, this is, of course, something we are exploring as well. And could your platform as well be integrated with some of the bio, biomarker diagnostic systems. Um, you know, you, you've got effectively a platform that, that connects healthcare and, and remote patients. Um, and down the line, once people have developed um, algorithms and, and models in this area, I mean, a lot of people are looking at um, uh, oncology at the moment, and there are some people looking at early onset of um, cardiovascular disease or um, likelihood of um, Alzheimer's or dementia with certain biomarkers. Do you think you could um, effectively take your platform and put it into diagnostic systems as well? Could that be something for you first to look at? Yeah, it, it would be interesting. Um, I think that, um, so one of the one of the challenges is we are quite focused on the community, yeah. um, and some of the diseases sometimes require a hospital setting. Yeah, and uh, so we, we kind of see ourselves as the, the like the first mile of a health yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. journey of of, yeah. of a patient, yeah. uh, and then maybe like and, and then taking the patient into the specific pathways for the different diseases. Where yeah. you can take the patient to a more specialized checkup that focused on on, yeah, on, yeah. on some of the diseases that you were you were mentioned. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's kind of. It, I think it will be a, it will be a journey. Yeah. Um, thinking like it, in the UK, like GP appointments are very hard to get, and then getting the the right scan or the right indication test or whatever for the early indicator of um, a cancer or dementia or um, heart disease takes a long time. So could there be a platform which you guys have um, sort of um, created around you know, community care and um, connecting to the community um, that could look in that direction as, as well? Um, but that's, that's me going away from the business, doing my business proposition to Febris. But in terms of like internet access, um, here's a, a question that I thought, how much does someone like Febris, whilst you're democratizing those with internet access, because you can't control internet access delivery, are you worried that you're gonna be leaving to, like, people way behind if they don't have internet access? Well, uh, it, this is something that we've had in our mind since day one. And as I was mentioning before, because the, the first study, uh, the first pilot that we did was in the slums in India, where internet is definitely a problem. Yeah. Um, so it, we've been trying to solve this challenge since day one. And so 
when you like you were mentioning like when you join the dots between okay we need to use ai because we need clinical reliability but we also need to run offline to make this very accessible uh you end up in a scenario that is called um running machine learning on the edge basically yes. so what we do uh is we put the models that we run in the mobile phone uh, so they can run fully offline. And whenever we start a machine learning project, we are very conscious about this, that we need to develop it in a way that then can be run offline on a mobile phone. And this has a particular set of challenges. So a mobile phone, for example, has, even though today they are quite advanced, it has less computing power than a, than a server on the cloud, of course. Yeah. And also, you don't have the flexibility of doing running any programming language, for example, on the mobile phone that you do have uh, on a server. Um, and me as a, as a software engineer, um, so I come mostly from a software background, like I was saying, and I was, I was a bit surprised that there is a lot of information out there about building the models um, and the algorithms, which don't get me wrong, it's still a very complex thing to do. Um, but this thing about deploying models on the edge in a mobile-first software product, there doesn't seem to be a lot of information out there about this. Uh, and even less when you talk about doing it, doing it offline. So, uh, so it's been quite of a journey for us and a great learning experience. Um, hopefully there are some frameworks out there and technologies. Uh, so for example, Google developed a, a big framework called TensorFlow that has a mobile-first version called TensorFlow Lite that we use. Uh, Apple, Apple has another one called Core, Core ML uh, that is it's also quite interested. Yeah. Uh, and we also harness a lot like low level languages uh, like C++ that can allow us to run the code quite efficiently yeah. uh, in, in mobile devices. So you would see that the, 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 to overcome the challenge of lack of internet is to put it in their hands straight there and then. Um, and I and probably the development phase coming from you can call them OEMs, right? With Google and, and Apple, um, it, that is probably going to be quicker developing uh, an R and D phase than internet access for all. Um, uh, especially yeah. like in, if you look at America, the coverage in America is awful, um, especially in what my housemate calls a flyover states because <laughs> he's from Boston. So yeah. he's like, there's nothing really much in there. So don't bother, just fly over them. Um, <laughs> um, so that's super cool. Um, but then I guess, like, how do you make that cost effective? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so the, the way we do this um, is, as you were saying, so we have a machine learning team uh, and they work in research mode. Uh, they try different algorithms, um, trying to solve the problems that we are seeing. And, and once they settle on our approach, what we do is we start a deployment project uh, where software engineers work side by side with machine learning. So at this point, kind of the model is already tried, tested, uh, validated. Um, and that's when we decide, okay, this is worth deploying. Um, and that project typically includes a translation because the machine learning world works in languages like Python, but you cannot run Python on a mobile phone. Yeah. Uh, so you need to translate these models into other languages. Yeah. Uh, and the interesting thing about these, these projects is that building, building AI is one thing, but you shouldn't underestimate this deployment process because you also need to think about how you are going to surface to the user the results of the model so that it's actionable. 
So I was, as I was saying before, like if the probe is not correctly positioned and the, the model detects that, okay, how can we transmit that to the user, the, this result of a model in a way that is really actionable and useful for increasing the quality. Mm -hmm. um, and that all that thinking needs to go in um, and, and it, it, needs, it needs specific effort and, and time. And so that would come, I guess, with how you're setting up Fibris um, and who you're, you're hiring and how you're hiring um, from an from early stage, um, right? It's a different process to being more, I guess, loose with AI is the right term to say it if you're not doing it on the edge, you know, <laughs> like you have less parameters, let's say, um, yeah. to put it in. So when it comes to like regulations as well, how are you dealing with that? Because you said early on that you didn't come from medtech background, which is fantastic with the exact kind of person that we want to have in this industry who wasn't in medtech and come in and has made massive success. So how have you dealt with it? What have you learned? And <laughs> what would yeah, you tell us looking to move in? <laughs> yeah, that's an amazing, amazing question. So yeah, I mean, regulations are a challenge. Uh, I have yet to find someone that tells me that they love regulations. No one loves regulations. <laughs> Maybe a QA engineer. QA uh, maybe, yeah. <laughs> so it's been it's been a journey for me. Um, and one of the things, so we're talking about regulations. And one of the things that I like to talk about is how the regulations for medical devices really started, uh, which is with a little story about a radiation therapy device called Therac Twenty Five. This happened around in the eighties, um, and this device was an evolution from a previous version. And what happened, unfortunately, is that they designed uh, the device and moved some of the things that were hardware checks, so physical things, to software. And when they did this, uh, they unfortunately introduced some mistakes that under very particular circumstances caused an overdose of radiation on patients. And if you, it's in Wikipedia, so it's public, but uh, several, unfortunately, several people got injured. And I think this is a little bit of an extreme case. The reality is that not every medical device is, is software medical devices as critical as this one. But from this story, you can tell that to work in health, there needs to be some kind of assurance that you are doing things the, the right way. Um, and however, one of the challenges is that software and regulation. So regulations today have quite a heavy inheritance of how things are done in the manufacturing world, where you design a device and then kind of you, you push it to the factory, right? And so you design it and you push it to the factory and you yeah. kind of forget about it. But that's not how you build software in this century. Uh, you build software in an iterative way, uh, in an agile way. You are learning all the time about what, what, you, what you build. So there is this mismatch is something that as time goes by, will start like, um getting better but today is kind of a challenge so i believe that what what has helped us is really understanding what the regulation wants and seeing how we can achieve this without droning basically in paperwork uh so we, we like to say like keeping it practical without necessarily compromising on, on quality of course yeah. so and this has different it works in different ways in different areas in a way was there a time where you thought, I can't do this anymore? <laughs> you thought, I'm, I just, just, this is just too much. Let me change, let me change back into a different industry. 
not like that, but uh, the reality is a, it's a little bit like when you are reading a book uh, and you maybe the first 10 pages are harder because you need to get into the mood and the way the author tries to communicate, communicate things. Yeah. And, and regulation are a bit like that. Like at the beginning, you need to really kind of understand what they're trying to say with all this like kind of weird wording. But once you get in, after that you cross that line, it becomes yeah. it becomes easier. Um, but yeah, at the beginning, it's, like, it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, so did you have any help at all, like interpreting and then putting in the processes at Fibris? Uh, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. of course. We we work with we, we consultants that help us. Uh, people that have experience with this, uh, and it's yeah, it has has been really helpful. Yeah. So so right now you have quite a, a good process and system. You would you would say in terms of interpreting it to a software point of view and what an engineer would understand, rather than like what a, I guess like a QA person would understand. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's still an evolution. I wouldn't yeah. say it's, it's, it's perfect. Uh, but yeah, we, 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 we work and we, we have some of the processes in place. Yeah, awesome. And the, one of the best things about Feebus, and this is why sort of we were um, connected together at the start of the year, um, was you guys are growing. And yeah. you guys are you're hiring and um, doing, doing some really interesting things around, you know, software engineering, like you said, ex explain, and also the purpose and what you're looking to do and the impact you're looking to, to make right now and in the future um, is pretty incredible. So as a young startup, um, probably going into quite a high scale-up phase soon, what is it like um, working yeah. with you guys? Because you guys have got a remote team, right, as well, around, around the world. Yeah, exactly. We have So we have offices here in London, but we are also expanding to the US. Uh, we have our first person there and, and hope to be expanding more throughout the year. Uh, so yeah, I mean, startups uh, for me is like uh, the reality that you have a thousand things that you could be doing um, and they all look important on the surface. So you need to be all the time uh, choosing and being conscious that when you decide to work on something, you're choosing that over something else. It's yeah. a constant balance and uh, probably more an art than a science as many <laughs> things in life. <laughs> uh, but on the positive side, like I, I really like to think. So first of all, that feeling of small, close new team trying to achieve something like really yeah. hard in a way, yeah, yeah. I, that, that really motivates me. Um, and that's one thing. And the other thing is like uh, in a company at our size that is growing, there are still many things to be defined and nothing is necessarily set in stone. Uh, so there are a lot of opportunities for ownership, for defining things, setting up processes. Uh, and the, the, the best thing is like making those decisions and see how they end up playing in time. Yeah. Sometimes they, they go well, sometimes they don't go well, uh, but both are a huge learning opportunity. Uh, and in bigger companies, uh, these, these things have already happened in the past, typically, when you join. So you don't have those opportunities. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And how do, you, how do you have that, like, community feel um, of, like, common purpose, people trying to do something great whilst working in different locations? Yeah. Um, so we try, I mean, communication, of course, is super important. So we, we try to do regular meetings, um, all hands, catch-ups, 
uh, remote socials. Uh, we've, we've introduced some time ago and have worked really well. Don't say a Zoom quiz. <laughs> <laughs> we have a set of games uh, that we play. Uh, and yeah, I've realized, everyone has realized that I am an, an amazing drawer. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I think like keeping, uh, like using whatever, like the best remote communication tools that, that, that are there at the moment. So we use Miro, of course, we use Slack. Uh, there are quite amazing tools today that you can harness to make sure that the team is communicating well. Yeah. And what does, you mentioned first, first boots on the ground in, in the US, um, expansion, and you're in NHS uh, elderly care homes at the moment. Um, yep. so what does the next 12, 18 months look like for Fibris if people want to get involved? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I do believe that I, I'm, I'm certain that uh, so this thing that we've been talking about transitioning healthcare more into people's homes, into the community, um, in a way is inevitable. So it will happen. Uh, of course, with these things, you never know when it will come the standard, if it's in five years, in 10 years. Uh, but I believe that the problem we are trying to solve is quite universal in a way. Yeah. And as you are saying, it applies to multiple markets and multiple settings. So we started with the slums in India. We are working with care homes in the UK. But there are the scenarios like virtual wards when, when people are discharged from, from the hospital. Uh, there is a lot to grow in the primary care space here with GPs in the UK. Yeah. Uh, also shelters and community homes are nothing that we are exploring. So I think there are huge opportunities for growth. Um, and if, if we can really overcome some of these challenges that we've been talking today, so I think uh, we, should, we, can, we should be able to build something that is really useful for, for patients and, and clinicians and, and help them on their journey. Yeah, yeah, and it's, that means it's not growing on the tech side. It means going in other areas of the business as well, right? Of course, yeah, yeah. as well. So look, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, love, love, love chatting with you and, and, and learning all about Febris and what you guys have been doing and your story and having someone who wasn't in med tech and coming in and explaining what that's like and being really successful um, in, in this area. And it sounds like a really exciting time for Febris. Um, so, so yeah, if anyone wants to follow up, how's best to contact you directly? <laughs> yeah, I mean, my email uh, is out there, sebastian at hubris.com. Uh, anyone can reach me anytime, any questions. I'm always trying to connect with people in this space um, and sharing challenges, um, learning from others, uh, experience, of course. So yeah, definitely reach out. Awesome. Brilliant. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening, guys. Um, next episode will be out in two weeks' time. But thank you very much, Sebastian. Peace out. Thank you. A pleasure. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the episode of LifeSite AI, the podcast series. If you would like to go back and listen to any of Series 3, please do so on the best playlist for you to uh, get that from. If you would like to listen to the rest of Series 1 and Series 2, please visit cyproglobal.com. Thank you.